into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon dry land. All right, Tony, I'm going to pray for you. Uh, Tony's going to be bringing the word of God to us today and preaching. Um, Lord God, I thank you so much for Brother Tony. I thank you for his giftings. I thank you that uh, we have your word that is powerful and mighty, and uh, we are just your, your weak vessels that you use. And I ask that today you would use Tony, that you would speak through him in a, a mighty and powerful way, and uh, that you'd use him despite the, the loss of his more significant voice. Uh, Lord, just with sickness, Lord, may you... Uh, just allow him to just speak boldly and well, uh, regardless of that, Lord. So be with us today and teach us today. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. <clears throat> Thank you, brother. So whenever we come into church, we often talk about this thing called worship, right? Worship. And in a lot of ways, it's mysterious, because if you, if you hear people talk about deep, heartfelt worship, it is a thing where they find themselves in the presence of the Lord and they're lost in who he is. True worship is described as a place where you're, where you're out of yourself. You're not thinking about yourself. You're not thinking about your own status you're thinking about who God is, how great he is, and it's, it's like bliss. It's the best part of your favorite song over and over. It's a feeling, as people describe it, that is unmatched. So people talk about being moved towards worship. But when does that happen? Where do, I, where do we find ourselves moved to worship God? Um, how does that work? Some of us find the idea of true deep worship unfamiliar. Um, the bliss that some describe, we would say we've never really felt, you know? We've maybe liked a song that we've heard in a, in a singing worship service. We've maybe thought, oh, that, that band up on stage, they really are, they, they sound really good, and I'm, uh, this is a great experience. But we might say, that bliss, that presence of God, we've not often felt. Where do we find that? Has anybody here ever visited a cathedral? You know, I mean, there, there's one in St. Louis, there's um, the, the Catholics have been really good about building them kind of around the, the United States. But if you go over into Europe and in the Middle East and um, in, in, even into Asia, in Russia, you will find these large, ornate cathedrals that as you, as you walk in, the ceilings are high and they're vaulted with decorations. There are works of art that often surround you. And the entire experience of entering into a cathedral is meant to dwarf you so that you, you somehow maybe get a glimpse of the bigness and the glory of God. That's kind of what they're designed to do. 
Um, in America, sometimes we look at cathedrals as just like a sign of wealth. Like this is just something that rich people have. You know, rich, rich churches build giant buildings just so they can experience their own glory. But historically, cathedrals were, yes, rich, large buildings, but they were meant for everyone. In a sense, it was the church's property so that a poor man could walk into this magnificent space and get a glimpse of who God is. That was the intention. Is that where we worship? In cathedrals? In big churches? Is that what moves us? We've been in the book of Jonah, and we've talked about Jonah as a prophet, being a man who, in in a special way, has experienced the presence of the Lord in a way that most of us probably haven't. And yet, what happened whenever the word of God came to him at the beginning of this book? Did he embrace that presence? Did he lose himself in worship? No. He didn't like what God told him to do, and so he turned and he ran. He rejected the word of God. He did the opposite of worship. We get the impression later on as Jonah speaks and explains his actions that in his distaste for God's word, he looked at God and basically said, see, this is why I ran. It's because of what you did. It's your fault. My sin, my reaction, it's your fault. And so we find Jonah, whose lips were made by God to sing his praises, to give, to give voice to his people as he spoke his words. Jonah's lips lost all sense of song, all sense of worship. He became bitter and he became hardened so that in the midst of the storm, as we read a couple weeks ago, whenever the sailors on his boat come to him and say, this is about to overtake us, we're all going to die, please call out to your God. What does Jonah do? Nothing. He doesn't call out to God. There's no prayer, no praise, no sense of worship. On his lips. Jonah has run headlong into darkness. And yet in this passage, we see God pursue him into that darkness. So let's jump into our text. We'll read through and go verse by verse and, and see what the Lord has for us. Verse 17, it says, And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and for three nights. So first off, I want to draw your attention to the word appointed. This fish that was sent to swallow Jonah was chosen specifically by God for the task. This highlights the fact that God is not absent to this situation, but he is in it. 
This whole thing, the storm, the near shipwreck, the being cast into the ocean, the fish that comes along and swallows him, is God pursuing and chasing after a man that should have been close to him. This fish was appointed by Jonah to swallow him. And he's in the belly for three days. Anybody read this and just go, getting eaten by a fish? Right, how does that work? Anybody seen Pinocchio? Right, you know, so Pinocchio, there's a big whale, comes and he eats Pinocchio in the Disney movie, and he sits in the little dinghy and, you know, oh, woe is me. You can see the ribs of the whale. Um, you know, that's kind of like how all the kid children's Bibles always pointed it out to me. Um, so that's not what stomachs are like, whether it's a fish or a whale. I don't know if God, like, custom built this fish, you know, so he has a little office inside the belly. That's not the impression that I get. Um, whenever it says he was in the belly of the fish, it just says it was a belly of a fish, and that he was there for three days. Hmm. Moving on to verse 1. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord, his God, from the belly of the fish. And so he's swallowed by this giant aquatic monster. And while he's in the belly, after he's come out of the water, and he's in a place of relative safety, it says, then he prayed. He, he had opportunity after opportunity after opportunity to pray before this. But it's this moment, this place, where finally something starts to break through. Do we see that? This stubborn, hardened man, finally in the gross intestines of this, of this fish, starts to realize something. And it says he prayed to the Lord from the belly. <clears throat> so, related to the first question we asked about the experience of a belly and a fish, who gets eaten by a fish and then writes a poem? Is, it, is anyone, you see this is like a song? Um, and so the question could come up, like really a poem in a belly? Like you get eaten and you're covered with all the things that would cover you and you're writing a song? How do you even do that? I mean, it's, he doesn't have like a pen and a paper and a quill and dip in ink. What is this like? Now, the fact that he's in there three days, I think, helps us. Um, this song is relatively short. We read it in, what, less than a minute when it was up on the board? And so I take this psalm that he writes, this song, this poem that he writes, to, to not literally be him writing down a song in the belly of the fish, but to be a summary of his experience there. Um, I don't know who in this room has ever been in intense pain, in intense suffering, I know that some of us have, but not all of us have. But let me tell you, whenever things are really, really bad and it comes time to pray, you don't always have the words immediately. 
You don't know what you even think or what you're even feeling. Jonah came near to death. He had fled God. His world was turned upside down. He was scared for his life. Certainly, we see that in this passage. And for three days, he spent being apparently not digested in the belly of this beast of a fish. And I imagine if he's anything like the rest of us, that in the delirium that he experienced over three days in that dark place, themes finally started to form in his mind. Ideas began to form in his mind. So that he spent three days in this place reflecting in the darkness about who he is and where he is, who God is and where God is. And so we have this beautiful song that coalesces out of his experience. Let's read it. Verse 2. I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol, I cried, and you heard my voice. He answered me. I want us to get the weight of that statement from Jonah. He answered me. All that rejection, and he answered me. All my sin, and he answered me. I ran from him. And yet he answered me. That's amazing. The God that Jonah served, the God that we serve, is a God who answers us, even though we a thousand times, a thousand times have rejected him. He is not a God who leaves us alone in the times of our greatest need. In Jonah's distress, despite his sin, God answered him. It says, out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. Sheol is a Hebrew word that refers to the grave. Literally what Jonah is saying here is, I was dead. And even though I was dead, God heard my voice. It's amazing the character and the faithfulness of God. So it's no coincidence that that's where his passage starts. Verse 3. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the floods surrounded me, and all your waves and your billows passed over me. So Jonah is acknowledging the goodness and the grace of God, but he's also acknowledging the source of his suffering. Do you see it here? He says, you cast me into the deep. You cast me into the heart of the seas. 
the near-death experience that Jonah suffers is from the hand of God. The God we serve pursues people who run from him. But sometimes he pursues us with hard and painful things. The God that loves us and cherishes us is willing to put us in harm's way that we might come to our senses for our own good. And notice specifically the form that this discipline from God takes. It says um, that he was cast into the sea. Do you remember just a few verses before in Jonah? Is it said what his plan to do, what, it, what his plan to do was? He rejected the word of God as it came, and he was going to flee um, to Tarshish. Like he was going to, that's, that's a word that reflects distant shores, deep to sea. He ran to a boat and fled towards the middle of the oceans. He ran into the midst of the sea to get away from God. And what does God do to rebuke him? He casts him in to the very sea that he ran to. Do you see that? Jonah thinks that somehow out on the seas he'll escape the hand of God. And God gives him over to that thing that he uses to put distance. Friends, if we are fleeing from God, the very thing that we think will deliver us from him, the very thing that we think will give us comfort instead of him, the very thing that we think will give us joy and hope will be the thing that kills us. Do you see that here? Jonah fled in sin, and the very thing he used to flee was the thing that would kill him. He goes on, and he says, your waves and your billows were over me. Each individual blow, the waves were God's waves. The billows were God's billows. Each individual blow was from the Lord. Every setback was to be a reminder. Friends, not every single hardship that we go to, that we go through, is from God. Um, the Bible makes that clear, that some things we suffer are at the hands of evil men or from the enemy. So not everything is directly from God, but every hardship we suffer is still an opportunity to praise him, to remember him as Jonah remembered him. He continues in verse 4. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet shall I look again upon your holy temple. 
And so Jonah is driven away from the sight of God. As he enters into the water, as he sinks down into the depths, the world goes dark. The light that comes from the glory of the Lord as, he wor- as he's being worshipped starts to fade. He's driven away from God's sight, out of his presence, out of his safety. And yet in that moment... When the darkness is surrounding him, he says, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. Even though the gaze of God seems far away from Jonah, Jonah in this moment says, I'll look to you, even if I can't see you. The temple in the Old Testament is not just a building, remember? It represents the place where God's presence lives. And so we see in Jonah, the one who'd run away from the presence of God, he's, he's starting to look back to it. <clears throat> Maybe this shouldn't surprise us. Anybody here, you don't have to raise your hand. Anybody here ever been on the wrong end of a breakup? get dumped because um, you weren't paying attention like you should have been. It's a fairly common experience. Anyone here ever find a friendship fall apart because you weren't being the kind of friend you should have been? (laughs) When a gaze of affection is taken away, whenever we value someone, and all of a sudden they stop valuing us, um, often that's when we suddenly realize the value of that relationship. Have you ever been there? You lose the relationship, and then that's when you realize, oh, I should have been better. I should have done things differently. When the gaze of God is finally taken away from Jonah and he truly feels the emptiness that comes with that, that's when he suddenly realizes how much he needs it. Verse 5. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed on me forever. This is, this is horrific imagery here in verse 5 and 6. It's the image of being buried. It's a horrific experience to have to bury someone. It's a horrific experience to imagine being the one being buried. And as Jonah sank down into the sea, he was experiencing it. It says, I went down into the land whose bars were closed upon me forever. The bars of Sheol, the bars of the grave, is an, is an image that's throughout the Old Testament in several places. And it just pictures people being locked in the grave. There's no coming back. 
And so in Jonah's mind, at this moment, he was done. It was over. But then we run into the second half of verse 6. So he went down to the land whose bars were closed upon me forever. I was done. It was over. I was dead. Verse 6 at the end. Yet you brought up my life from the pit. O Lord, my God. Jonah thought he was lost. And at the last minute, God brought him back up. This is a picture that becomes significant to Christians everywhere as we talk about resurrection. That God can bring life to the dead. And we get a picture in Jonah's poem here of a God who saves dead people. Verse 7. It says, When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord. And my prayer came to you into your holy temple. So this is a picture of last-minute grace. What I mean by that is that at the last minute, Jonah came to understand who God was and how gracious he was in a way that he hadn't before. I don't recommend waiting to the last minute to seek out God that is dangerous beyond dangerous. And there are plenty of people who have said, I will wait, I'll figure out my spiritual life later. And then later never came. But hear me on this. If you think you're too far gone, if you think it's too late, if you think your life is already practically over, if you think that your sin is too deep, that your problems are too sticky, God hears the prayers of the desperate. It's not too late. It's not too late. God loves to give last-minute grace to the genuine. So what's the key to that? To getting that kind of grace in spite of who we are. We see that towards the second half of the verse. Jonah says, as my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord. That gives us a clue that within Jonah at this moment is a heart of repentance. He remembered the Lord. He recognized in that moment his absolute need and that God could meet that need. The man that in the beginning of the story stood up as God's judge, how dare you tell me you're going to save these people that I hate? The man who stood as God's judge earlier in the story recognizes how twisted his heart is how messed up his position is, and how great his need is. Verse 8. Those who pay regard to vain idols 
forsake their hope of steadfast love. Jonah here recognizes that the God who saves him is amazing. And that those who would pray to idols, those who would give themselves over to kind of useless fancies, empty desires, pretend gods, things that are supposed to comfort or save, that for those who don't give their lives to the true God, they forsake all their hope. Friends, whenever we pursue our own desires, the destructive, sinful desires that twist our worldview, when we pursue those, we are actively forsaking our hope. It's not that God doesn't love us. It's not that he won't pursue us in spite of our sin. No, God, God keeps those who are truly his. But hear me when we pursue our own desires. We're saying that the only thing that's worth hoping after is useless. Finally, verse 9. In verse 10. But with a voice of thanksgiving, I will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. I'm actually going to stop here as far as going through the verses. We see in verse 10 that the fish spits Jonah back up and that the day is saved. But this is the final part of his poem and the final part of what we're really looking at today. When we get to the end, Jonah has his voice back. It's a weird thing for me to say on a day with laryngitis and I have no voice. But at the end of this song, at the end of this experience, Jonah is able to worship the Lord again. In verse 9, with the language of sacrifice and vowing and salvation, we see links back to what we heard about the sailors on the boat at the end of their experience where they made sacrifices and made vows to God. And so, if you remember last time, we said it was, it was strange that the outsiders, that the people who weren't God's people were the ones that had drawn near to him. And now we see in the language of these final lines that Jonah's heart had finally joined the sailors on the boat. That he'd gathered together in his spirit with the unlikely worshipers. And that he was worshiping God. The last line is really the key to the whole passage. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Our lives, our temporal lives, the lives that we live right here, right now, and our eternal lives, where we spend after we die, are in his hands. There is no other God, there is no other name by which we might be saved. Salvation belongs to the Lord. So let's get into a little bit more of application, and then we'll finish up. So I have application for kind of four people groups here. I'm just going to go through them and kind of give a couple words. 
as we think about how to apply these, pass- this, uh, these words to us. So first off, I want to talk to the stubborn among us. I'd say raise your hands if you're stubborn, but you're probably too stubborn to raise your hand. Um, for those among us who find it very easy to run from God, to not pay him any mind, to give ourselves over to callousness, to hear his word and run from it because we don't like it, because of the claims it makes on our life. Don't live this way. Live this way instead. For those of us who are stubborn and who run, hear me on this, our only hope is that God chases us into the darkness. That's our only hope. Because if our heart is hardened in such a way that we're not seeking God, if he doesn't chase us, we're lost. And that's what he did. The truth is, the whole world is stubborn. We're all lost in our sin. We're all spiritually dead in our sin. And he chased us all into the darkness. He sent his son to die for you. Your sins mean that you deserve death. You deserve not just death now, but eternal death. And God sent his son as a perfect sacrifice to absorb the punishment that you deserve. And so if you're hearing my voice, as I say, turn to Jesus, cast your hope on him, recognize that he's chasing you even now. And I pray that you would hear now, because I don't want you to have to get where Jonah gets, where life gets even worse before you realize. Now's the opportunity. For those who are currently suffering, currently going through something hard, my heart goes out to you. I've been through my own bit of suffering recently. I'll say this, it's dangerous for me to interpret your situation for you. It's dangerous for me to look into your suffering and say, oh, this is why you're suffering. Some suffering, like Jonah's, is from the Lord. Some suffering, the scripture teaches us, is from the enemy to get us to run from the Lord. I don't want to say what you're going through is from God. But maybe in your heart you recognize that it is. Maybe you hear these words from Jonah and you say, yeah, I should remember God. I should repent. God may be giving you a last chance in your suffering right now to turn back to him. Do it. Don't wait. Third group are for those that have lost their voice. Who want to worship, who want to pray, but just find it difficult. Don't feel it. God is glorious, friends. He is big. 
and he doesn't stay in his temple. He doesn't stay in the cathedrals that are spread around the world. He pursues people. And if you're in a place of darkness that comes when worship has left you, then pray to him today that he would shine through that darkness, that he would break through, that he would give you a fresh glimpse of his glory and of his salvation. You don't deserve it. You don't deserve to worship him, but he allows you to. Pray that you would see that mercy and that grace. And then finally, for those that do already have their voice, for those that can say, I am worshiping, I have experienced what it is to be in bliss with the Lord, then all I want to tell you out of this passage is that take heed of it. We have hope for the hopelessly lost. Do you understand what I'm saying? If we recognize who God is and how powerful he is and how good his gospel is and how much he wants to save everyone, even the hopelessly lost, even the near dead, how can we not take that hope to them? How can we not sit down with the heart hurting and seek to comfort them? If we believe that God can save right up to the last minute, then we can't lose hope for the people we love who have rejected him. Pray for them, encourage them, warn them. Call to those that are lost in the storms of life to come and find refuge in God because he gives refuge. One day, all of us are going to be gathered together in a heavenly temple And we will spend eternity singing in absolute bliss and in absolute perfect worship. And it will never end. And we will have joy upon joy upon joy. And our hearts will be filled and there'll be no sorrow. As we said last week, every tear will be wiped away. But in the meantime, we will have to fight. To see him and pursue him and seek him. And we will acknowledge that we need him to chase after us in the times whenever it's just not in us to seek after him. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, you are good and you're loving. You could have cast Jonah aside and found another prophet. One who would listen to you. But instead you chased him down. You wouldn't let him destroy himself. Lord, you don't need us. I'm sure there are less stubborn people in the world than those in this room. And yet you've chased after us. And we thank you for that. Lord, give us hearts to worship you. Give us hearts to repent. Give us hearts to flee from our idols. 
we cling to your goodness and your glory. And give us voices to sing your praise and to call other people to come and find rest in you. For we know that you give it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.